Welcome to the Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brannan, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. Ross Brannan is a financial advisor who knows it's not just about your teeth. He helps dental practice owners protect and maximize today's cash flow to plan for tomorrow's cash needs. Find him at rossbrannan.com. On the show, he brings together experts to help dental professionals looking to make smart money decisions to grow their income, turn their retirement goals into reality, and improve their lives. And now, here's your host, Ross Brannan. Welcome to the show. Today, I have Kevin Cumbus of Tusk Partners, which is a dental practice and DSO M&A advisor. They're based in Charlotte, North Carolina, work all over the country, and one of the top M&A advisors in the country for dentists. Kevin, welcome to the show. Ross, it's good to be here, man. So, Kevin, tell our listeners a little bit about Tusk and what you guys do. Yeah, sure. At Tusk, we really, it's pretty simple. We do one thing. We help dentists and group practice owners monetize the value of their life's work at the top of the market without regret. The one thing that's interesting about Tusk and unique to us is we only work with dentists and groups that want to partner with DSOs or private equity groups. So if a dentist wants to sell their business to another dentist, we can refer them to an excellent local broker. But we actually only focus on folks who want to sell to DSOs or private equity groups. You said something interesting there. You said without regret. And it's interesting that uh, you said that because I know a guy who sold his practice about three years ago. He's 47 now, I think. So he was probably 44 when he sold it. And he sold it for a nice number, a really nice number. And he and I had some conversations about that. You know, you know I, I didn't really think it was the best move for my own personal opinions, but it's a free country. He can do what he wants. In hindsight, he feels like he was pressured to sell because I think someone might have been getting a piece of the action on the back end for, for some reason. I don't know that for sure. It's just my assumption. But I talked to him a few months ago. And he said he completely regrets it and said it was one of the worst decisions he's ever made in his life. And now I think at this point, you know, he's close to the end of his earnout. I think he wants, he lives in a rural area, so it's kind of hard to just go start another practice. But I think he's looking to start another practice in that. So talk a little bit about when you say without regret. Yeah, sure. So first things first, I mean, it did Dentists, any small business owner that goes through the trials and tribulations of building the business, taking on the risk, ultimately getting to cash flow, uh, congratulations, right? It's hard enough to do that. But once you're there, you get one chance to sell that asset, one chance. And I think that there has been a little bit of like the spirit of fear of missing out and selling too soon or getting caught up in the moment and taking an unsolicited offer from a DSO that buys you a nice piece of red meat, red wine, or not talking to your tax advisor or your CPA or your financial planner to understand where you are on the road to financial independence and selling your business, your largest income-producing asset, and possibly your most valuable asset too soon. So that's one piece of the equation. And the other piece of the equation is, why would you ever say in, a, in an industry where there are 150 private equity backed DSOs with gobs of money 
why would you ever accept the first offer when you're going to have to work post-sale? Why would you ever do a DIY deal when somebody like Tusk will bring 20 bidders to the table? You'll have five letters of intent. You'll be able to pit those against each other, negotiate them up to the highest value, and then choose the right cultural fit for yourself. Because as, as your friend is living right now, it is, yeah, you sell, there's a huge wire that comes at the end of the day, but you're linked to this business, this partner of yours for three to five years post-sale. And the regret I think comes in when you're like, did I do the right thing? Did I have confidence and clarity that I was doing the right thing? And when, when we've talked to folks who come up to us at trade show saying, I just, I wish I, I wish I would have known y'all existed because if I had, I would have, would have been able to make a well-informed decision and do this with a hundred percent confidence. It really is amazing because you see online people say, Oh, I, I sold for this much X and this much X. And then I've heard people sell for crazy multiples. And then, you know, 90 days later, it was such a bad cultural fit. They quit, walked away from all the earnout and everything. And really they thought they sold for 10, but really they sold for seven because they walked away. And there's a lot of do-it-yourselfers out there. Some people just feel like people are out to take advantage of them. And, and there probably are some people like that out there, but there's some people who don't realize this is a once in a lifetime transaction for them. This is a once a week transaction for a private equity group. And, you know, not that they're trying to screw you, but they are sharks and you are a minnow and uh, they know what they're doing. So it really, really benefits uh, doctors to, engage someone that's really professional like you guys. It, 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 it's it's mind-blowing how many people don't really understand how important that is. Yeah, look, it's, I wrote an article a while back about this concept. It's, it's like bringing a knife to a gunfight, doing a DIY deal. Remember that Indiana Jones episode where they, they got the samurai jumps out of the basket and he's like waving his sword around left and right, left and right, and Indiana Jones pulls out the gun and just pops him and puts him down? But Indiana Jones is the DSO here. Right. So right. when you're doing an unsolicited, when you're thinking about doing a DIY deal or taking an unsolicited offer, these DSOs are nice and smart and kind and charismatic, but they're also capitalists. And that is not a that is not a four water word, Ross. I'm a capitalist. You're a capitalist. But their job is to buy low and sell high. And the lower they can buy you for, the more money they make and the more money that person sitting across the table from you trying to convince you to join them, the more bonus they get at the end of the day. So I, I just think it's important to like peek behind the kimono a little bit, look behind the curtain and realize how the whole game is, is structured. What about the Sarah that I've seen a few times where you go under LOI and you know, you're offered, you know, $10 million, but this thing drags out for six months and they just keep, they keep whittling you down. Like next thing you know, it's six months down and they got you down to like seven and a half million bucks and you would never normally take that, but you're so emotionally exhausted, you sign your life away again. Is that the result of getting your, being taken advantage of? Is that the result of poor representation? What's the cause of that? It could be a couple of things. So let's just walk through the steps of a transaction. The letter of intent uh, is, is critically important. The, the, the minute before you sign a letter of intent as a seller, you have more leverage and more power than you're ever going to have, right? So, so what's in that letter of intent, letter of intent is going to drive the deal terms on a go-forward basis. 
And you've got to get crystal clear on what the deal terms are and how we're calculating enterprise value based on the EBITDA that's going to be the number that buy side engages a, their own accounting firm to run a quality of earnings on, right? So after you sign the letter of intent, they then engage this accounting firm to run a quality of earnings and they go, look, Dr. Smith, we don't really know what your EBITDA is. We've hired these experts to do this and we think it's probably a million bucks and we're gonna pay you 10 times on the million. And they come back and they're like, actually it's not a million, it's, it's 700,000. Right? They're like, oh, look, no big deal. We're still going to pay you 10 times, but instead of 10 million, we're going to pay you seven. Million. And because the profitability is not there, I know we talked about a three-year employment term, but I'm going to need to stretch that to five years. And, and I know we talked about 80% of that 10 million, now 7 million of cash at close and 20% equity roll, but maybe now we need to look to more of a 70-30 application. So it can always move, but always shift. And sometimes that's good deal making. And sometimes you get surprises in transactions and you need to reallocate risk through change in deal structure. But other times that's uh, not the case is what I would say. If you're doing a DIY deal, Ross, you have no leverage, right? It's not like you ran a process and there's a second, third, and fourth party that you're eager to work with in the event this one fails. So you, you do get a little emotionally attached to it. I, I think I think doctors, anyone, sorry, anyone can get attached to these things. And you start thinking about the vacation house and the trip to Europe with the family. And once you started mentally spending that money, it's hard to walk back from the deal table. Yeah, that's interesting. I assume you've got a lot of horror stories that you hear after the fact about that type of stuff. Uh, sadly, we do. I was at a conference in Denver this past, no, what was it? It was this past month and was sitting, it was a great conference, CSO conference. And I was on panel, on panel and spoke two or three times and was participating in a mastermind group. And two people came up to me over the course of, of the Saturday and just said, I can't believe I didn't know who you were. I, I can't believe I made this mistake without, without actually giving you a call. I regret the decision I made. It's tough, right? Because th- this is this is the one chance they get, and they maybe they thought they were working with a, and maybe the DSO is trustworthy, but but they just they don't feel like they had all the information at their fingertips and had an advocate for them and their families at the negotiating table. Let's let's talk a little bit about all the people out there who are representing buyers, shall we say. There's definitely different tiers of, shall we say, excellence. You know, Tusk is at the top. There's probably two or three other groups at the top that you would you would say they're, they're comparable to us. But then you've got the fly-by-nights like crazy. You've got, I mean, quite frankly, you've got doctors who just sold, now they're brokers. I've met brokers. I've met practicing doctors who are brokers. And I don't really know how you're going to have the time to do the level of work that you guys are doing. But talk about the different tiers, if you will, of what's out there and, and why someone should want to talk to the top people. Because like I told like I told you earlier, a lot of the selling point for these lower rung people is like, oh, the DSO pays the commission. The DSO pays the commission, which I know you have some strong opinions on. So let's, yeah. let's talk about that. Yeah, let me speak to that point. So rather than talk about other stuff, I'll, I'll talk about us and why we do it the way we do it. But can I can I take that position? Yes. So uh, 
in our world, we want to be inextricably financially aligned with our client. We want to go to bat for them. We want to go to the mat for them. We want to squeeze every last penny we can from every buyer. And we want and the way we know we are aligned with them is if we're taking a commission on the price at which they sell, paid for by our client to us. We also do not get paid a uh, upfront fee. We do not accept a retainer. We only get paid when they get paid and they have the right to change their mind at any time. Okay, because that's because we've set up our fees and structure our relationship that way. We do a lot of work on the front end to make sure there's a good fit for them and us. So we do a lot of complimentary work, understanding what their adjusted EBITDA is, what they're looking for, what their value drivers are, what their appreciation for risk is before we even sign them up. Because I, I think a lot of people want to test the waters and don't really commit it. And that, frankly, is, is not a good fit for us. If we're going to sign up for 100 hours of free work in hopes of getting a deal closed, we want to make sure we've got a partner there. Ross, if someone is says, I get paid by the buyer, don't worry about it, you're going to get a commission-free transaction. They're not looking out for your best interest. They're not going to bring a whole host of buyers to you. Um, they're only going to bring the buyer to you that they know can close the deal, and, and they're not really interested in how much you make. And, and the final thing they're likely not doing is bringing multiple buyers to the table getting them into a bidding war and driving up the value of your transaction and your deal. And then finally, allocating, working on the allocation of the enterprise value across cash and equity. So it's, I can't say it firmly enough. I absolutely believe everyone needs an advisor. I absolutely believe that whatever they, I think about it this way, if they're even charging you 10%, they're probably 10% better than you are at negotiating the deal. And I know from the all the clients we've worked with, everyone feels like they got a high return on their investment. So, but but just work with people who are aligned with you when you do this. So, so that's good commentary on the commission issue because that's a big issue for a lot of people. But talk about like, you know, if you had a if Tusk was an A and then and then and then there's a segment of the, of the broker population yeah. that's a B and there's a segment that's a C. What differentiates you guys from B and C? Yeah. So for us, we are. So my background is is ten years of finance and investment banking. Um, so I was I kind of cut my teeth in this in the publicly traded business world, working for a big big investment bank. So the when we think about running a doctor through a process, I borrow from that world every single time. As a result, I built a full analytics team here that's for the brightest people I know who go down when they're when they're preparing a business for sale. We don't. We even want the tax return. The tax return is built for the IRS. Um, we, we're interested in your profit and loss statement because that begins to tell us the truth. But what we really want is your general ledger, which is every single entry you ever put inside of QuickBooks. Because from there, we can really begin to dissect what's going on inside the business. I tell our team, we do it the hard way because it's the right way. Because by looking at the general ledger, we can find things that the accountant misclassified. The accountant's human. They're going to misclassify things. And if this work we do on the front end sets the expectation for the adjusted EBITDA, which is one of the two factors on which value is derived upon, right? So we got to get the, we got to get the adjusted EBITDA right. I know we apply more analytical rigor to that effort than 
anybody I know of, and I'm really, really proud of that. Secondly, when you look at our M&A team, we have former CEOs of DSOs, former COOs of DSOs, former private equity buyers of dental practices, uh, people who used to do business development for huge DSOs, and they know when we collectively here at Tusk know the way the buyers are thinking about deals. We know how they get paid, we know how they score their deals, and we bring that knowledge to the seller's side, and they benefit greatly from it. You know, we got 13 people here, who most of whom have built a lifetime, of built their career inside the business of dentistry, and that's really what you get when you work with Tusk. Ross, this this industry, especially in the DSO world, uh, there is a lot of money sloshing around, and there are certainly going to be plenty of people that enter this without fully appreciating all that it takes to do this work and take shortcuts. And, and when the, you do that, you you put your client's deal in peril, and you certainly leave money on the table. Yeah, that's interesting. You know. I just think there's a lot of, because there's so much money in the industry, everyone's coming out of the woodwork to be a broker. Just like in 2005, everyone and their brother had a real estate license. Correct. And so it's, it's the same animal. So what are some things that you see that are some big, you know, things you have to kind of look out for and be careful of when you're a doctor selling a practice? Oh my gosh. Um, the list okay. is long. <laughs> this, the list is really long. Let me start with something that we've touched on already that I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of before. And, and that is believing that the multiple matters more than it does. Okay. So I recognize that I've written a lot and talked a lot about multiples. We let everyone know what our average transaction multiples were for our clients by specialty, by solo, by group, because it's a metric that matters and it tells the market and it tells others our valuations going up or valuations going down. So look, I'll own my side of the street, but multiple times EBITDA equals something we call enterprise value. And then comes the most important piece, which is the allocation of the enterprise value. Because it, I, I, like, if you have a million dollars of EBITDA, Ross, I will pay you 25 times your EBITDA today if you let me structure the deal. Because what I'll do is I'll pay you a dollar at closing. Then I'm going to structure this earnout that is almost impossible to achieve. Then I have a seller note in there that is, has just ridiculous interest in it. And ultimately, I'm going to be the great beneficiary, and you're going to come away with next to nothing. I think about your friend who feels like he maybe he exited with a little regret. Was the structure right? Did he really get what he thought he was going to get? Because we, we see buyers put LOIs together now. I mean, one buyer in the market is always a 10x because they know psychologically dentists want to be at 10 times. But when you start peeling back the layers of that offer, it's really like a four and a half X deal. And we, we see other buyers now include like stack, not just the enterprise value, but the return on rolled equity plus the commission. And they're printing in their letters of intent, doc, I'm happy to offer you 15 times your EBITDA. Yeah, that's realized over a 25 year period, maybe. So I would say like believing too much in the multiple and believing that that's valuable is a real Achilles heel for someone looking to do a DIY deal. Yeah, everyone gets caught up on it. Everybody does. And um, and there, this is another area where a DIY is not sophisticated enough to understand how these deals are structured. 
and you're you're in trouble if you structure the deal the wrong way. I mean, obviously, or maybe not in trouble, but it's not as it's not as uh, beneficial to you in that scenario. Yeah, what, what's really fun is when we're working a deal, we've got five offers from five different DSOs. Each of them have unique structures inside of them. And then we've got all the other offers we've seen over, over the lifetime of work we've done. And we're like, oh, I really like this one. Why don't we borrow a little bit from this offer, put it in this. Let's, uh, a year ago, we did a deal that, that had this feature. Let's grab that, put it in the letter of intent. Let's re-rack the cash flows. Let's see what the five-year cash flow projections look like now that we've sprinkled in a, a couple of unique features. And it greatly enhances the lifetime value of the transaction. And we'll go to the buyers and say, look, this is what we need to have to get the deal done. And we'll help you understand why it's important to, to our client. But a client who doesn't is doing a DIY deal, they just don't have access to that knowledge. Yeah, they don't have a clue. So it's not their fault. It's just not what they're in. It would be like you or I trying to go clean teeth or fill cavities. A hundred percent. So as we kind of wind down here, what do you see trend-wise? Um in the industry, you know, there's a lot of people who said this was all started due to zero percent interest rates. There's a lot of people who said this was going to slow down with the rise in interest rates. Doesn't look like that's happened. There's a lot of people who think that corporate will take over dentistry forever and there'll never be a, a, a privately owned practice again, which I think is a little extreme. What, what do you see happening? Where do you see things going? Uh, so about valuation first, uh, we get a lot of these questions too. So I did a study recently on, on the transactions we have done. And I looked back in 2021, 2022, and year-to-date 2023. And just as a point of reference, you know, it's about nine trades so far in 2023. So I said, what, what is our average multiple over these periods of time? And it went from 7.1 to 7.4 to 8.1 times. So our clients' valuations have been going up. That is in the face of COVID, rising interest rates, the great resignation, and in what most believe is a looming recession. That's pretty remarkable. So if you sit around and watch enough of the news, the sky has already fallen. It's over. Life is terrible. But the experience that our clients have had is vastly different. So that, that's what I'll – on the future of valuation – if there is a recession and the you know, the pundits say we should be seeing it Q4 or Q1 because the U.S. GDP should begin to dip in Q4, dentistry is about a quarter behind the rest of the U.S. economy. So maybe we see the dental recession begin in Q1 and they believe it's going to be about a one-year trust. So could valuations go down? Yeah, of course. Uh, they've been going up for a pretty nice click for a really long time and maybe going sideways or even coming down a notch or two would be okay. I'm okay with that. Dental practice is really, really valuable still. But we, we could be into peak valuation with a one-year drop before we see values back at where they are this year. Now let's talk about consolidation. Consolidation is happening at different rates in different industries. General dentistry was the first to really face rampant consolidation, both on a national and local scale. Heartland Dental Care showed everybody how to do it, created billions of dollars of wealth for, for stakeholders, and everybody got in the pool because the water was warm. People were terrified of aggregating specialty because there had been a colossal failure called Orthodontic Sitters of America a couple of decades back that resulted in lawsuits and people going to jail. So they're like, maybe we'll hold off on specialty for a little while. And then along comes smile doctors. 
and they began rolling up orthodontic practices. And they, they rolled them up remarkably quickly and had a spectacular exit. One of the highest cash on cash returns for any rolled equity, for any dentist, any specialist, and any DSO. And once they accomplished that, you began to see the other specialties begin to, to assimilate, to, to begin to uh, you know, have private equity groups say, okay, that was a success in ortho. I think we'll do oral surgery now. Oh, oral surgery was a success. Let's do endo now. <laughs> that worked too. Okay, now we need to go to perio. Now we need to go all on fours. Soon we're going to be going to sleep. The difference is, although the specialty DSOs are younger, there are fewer of them to aggregate. So the aggregation and consolidation in endo, oral surgery, and orthodontics is much more consolidated and aggregated than in Now, what percentage? Nobody's got a good number, boss. The ADA's numbers are garbage. You talk to an attorney, their numbers are garbage. You talk to us, we don't have any great data on this. And if, the, if somebody's going to solve it, the ADA needs to because they have the richest data set. I have heard people say it's somewhere between 20 to 25% consolidated dental in general dentistry, 25 to 30 in, in many of those specialties I just mentioned. But I think you're going to be hard-pressed to find anybody who can point to a data book and say this is the answer. And is it your opinion that, let, let's assume it is 20 to 25%. Where do you think it kind of stalls out at? Do you think it's at 50? Do you think it's at 70? What do you think? Yeah, so, so at some point, there's a DSO I really admire and the leadership team I really, really admire. And I, and I like talking with them because they, they, they're visionaries and they go, I want, they want to envision a time where they don't have to buy a dental practice anymore. And they don't have to buy a culture and they don't have to buy a dentist and they don't have to buy employees that have been there for 30, 40 years that are ingrained in their ways. That's hard, right? You've got to bring them from their culture, from the, the life that they've lived and, and all their little quirks and nuances and you've got to integrate them into your business. And, and eventually what they believe is uh, it will become more valuable to build a new practice from the ground with your team, with your culture, with your systems. Ultimately, that will create more long-term value than simply gobbling up even our stacking EBITDA is what you hear called a lot, just stacking EBITDA and hope the market will digest it. So will the solo dentists go away? No, but they won't. That's one thesis. But one of the most compelling pieces is the American Dental Association says the average dentist in America collects about 780,000 of collections. DSOs don't even want to partner with those guys. DSOs really want to partner with dentists doing at least one three to one five of revenue. So more than half of dentists in America aren't even good acquisition candidates for DSOs. So I think what we're all a little worried about is dentists coming out of dental school with three, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars in debt, depending on their specialty, they're going to have to get paid well. And can they take on the risk of starting a practice in the future with the debt burden they're going to have personally? So I don't know. It kind of took it in three different directions for your Ross, but I, I don't, I see solo practice living. It'll be here when I'm long gone. That's, I, that's my belief. So last question then is like this current, you know, Hyper set what I'm going to call a hyper selling environment that we're in, and we've been in for several years. When does it end or slow down? Realizing predictions are a sucker's game, so you're just pulling, you're 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 making an educated guess at best. Yeah, thought it would slow down already. I thought the cost of, of debt would all but kill it, and I thought that C and DSOs 
uh, have their lenders say, look, you're, you're not borrowing more money from me because you're out of covenant. You got to fix your operations. When it, it, it hasn't ended yet. We're going to be in for what I think is, is a really, really great run for valuation once you see the following things happen. There needs to be about, about two or three DSOs with over $50 million of, of EBITDA trade from one private equity group to another. Because what that means is there'll be a new market price set, multiple set for businesses of that size. Those three businesses will now have a fresh stack of capital to go out and buy businesses. And you'll start start to see the top end of the market begin to trade again. When that happens, there's billions of dollars of private equity money still sitting on the sidelines. Every time we come out of a recession, the multiples inside of dentistry go up a turn. Some of that money will flood into dentistry. We're going to see a nice big lick again. The issue is a lot of the big, beautiful assets that are a decade, two decades, multi-generational assets have already made the decision to partner with DSOs. And it's going to be these new wave DSOs that actually get that, that become the new acquisition targets that are built by 30, 40, 50 year old dentists that have been in the game 5, 10, 15 years. I, wow. I think we've got a pretty nice long run ahead of us, Ross. I don't say that to encourage others to get in, into, into the dental brokerage space, but I do I do feel like we've got a nice runway ahead of us. And there's there should be a lot more value that dentists and groups can extract uh, from their practice in the years to come. So, Kevin, if someone wants to work with with your firm, Tusk yep. Partners, how do they do that? How do they get in touch with you guys to, to figure out if it's a fit or not? Yeah. Uh, first things first, I would encourage anybody who has heard something on this podcast that, that piqued their interest to go to our website which is tusk-partners.com. On there, you'll see webinars, uh, blog. We, we, we write, our, we're not using ChatGPT for our blogs. We actually can write all these things. Uh, it's a labor of love, and I, I think you'll gain a lot of education there, uh, which could help fill some gaps. If you want to talk to somebody, give us a call. You can reach our offices here at 704-302-1044. Uh, 704-302-1043. And if you want to, uh, if you prefer email, you can send it to our head of business development, A Malone, A-M-A-L-O-N-E at tusk-partners.com. That's great information. I highly encourage anybody who is even quasi considering selling to have a conversation with these these guys. I, I know all you listeners get unsolicited emails all the time because I talk to many of you and you're getting unsolicited offers from DSOs. And you know, if it's the right time to sell, you definitely need to work with one of the top tier advisory firms out there. And Tusk is definitely that. Kevin, I really appreciate your time today. This has been a, a fascinating conversation. Ross, thank you for the invitation. It's always good to see you. You've been listening to the Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brannan. This has been another episode of Financial Flossing with Ross Brannan, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. If you liked what you heard, consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. For more on Ross Brannan, visit rossbrannan.com. Ross Brannan is a registered representative of Coastal Equities, Inc., and investment advisory representative of Coastal Investment Advisors, Inc. Investment advisory services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors, Inc., and securities are offered through Coastal Equities, Inc. Member FINRA, SIPC, 1201 North Orange Street, Suite 729, Wilmington, Delaware, 19801. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.